Can you imagine going outside to grab some firewood only to discover a severely decomposed body? Just performing a simple task that you have done a thousand times only to find something chilling? That's what happened to one man who was searching a forested strip of land known as a Lesopolosa when he stumbled across human remains. The area was only 50 yards wide with a path running through it, yet no one had seen the body until it was badly decomposed. On some of the bones, some small patches of leathered skin could still be seen, while some black hair hung from the skull. The man quickly reported the discovery to local authorities. There was nothing around or on the body indicating who this person was. The body was laying on its back with the head turned to one side. Authorities observed that the ears were still intact, well enough to see holes for earrings. With this and the length of the hair, authorities surmised that the victim was a female. The post-mortem posture also indicated that the victim had tried to fight her attacker. Two of her ribs had been broken, most likely by a knife. Upon closer inspection, they found numerous stab wounds that were in the bone. Even more chilling, a knife was used to cut into the eye sockets, as if the attacker tried to remove the victim's eyes. They also found similar gouges in the pelvic region. Police thought whoever had done this had to be a frenzied beast. It was a vicious attack that the authorities had not come across before. But this was only the beginning. Welcome to another episode of Crimson Sin with Tamsin Lee. I am your host, Tamsin Lee. Show notes and sources can be found in the description. Keep up with the latest posts, updates, transcripts, behind the scenes, sneak peeks, get to know me and more at buymeacoffee slash Tamsin Lee. You can also follow my page to receive email alerts when I post something new. The link will be in the description. Also, don't forget to visit my store to find some really cool items. I will also provide the link to the Tamsin Lee shop in the description. Today's case brings us to Russia. Between the years 1978 and 1990, where a serial killer murdered at least 53 people, which he later claimed he killed at least 56, and mutilated their bodies. Someone who always seemed to slip right through authorities' grasp, as he appeared to be a stand-up citizen. I also apologize if I mispronounce words and people's names during this episode. So, let's dive into the case of the Rostov Ripper. Investigators had a report of a missing 13-year-old girl named Lubov Biryuk from a village not far from where the remains were found. Her uncle had conducted an extensive search for her after she disappeared earlier in the month. Authorities called him to have a look at the remains, but the uncle denied it was Lubov claiming that his niece's hair was not as dark and stating that to him, it appeared the remains had been there longer than she had been missing. 
She went missing on June 12, 1982, and these remains were discovered on June 27th, only 15 days later. A few hours later, Major Mikhail Fedosov, the leading detective for the entire region, from the militia headquarters in Rostov, arrived where the body was found. Mikhail requested the records of all the missing persons in the area and ordered military cadets in training to search the surrounding woods. He also requested that the remaining skin on the victim's hands be fingerprinted. The cadets were able to find a white sandal in a yellow bag the next day. The bag had the brand of cigarettes the girl had been sent out to purchase before her disappearance. Authorities also fingerprinted the 13-year-old's school book covers, which ultimately confirmed that the body they found was Lubov. From the evidence they collected, authorities were positive that this was the missing girl. But how could her body decompose so quickly? The medical examiner theorized that heavy rain and warm temperatures accelerated the decomposition process. Unfortunately, authorities were unable to find any evidence that could help identify who killed Lebov. They were also unable to find the dress that she was last seen wearing. From all of this, investigators determined that the circumstances resulting in the young girl's death had to be a random attack. Surely it would be impossible to solve. In their investigation, authorities could not determine a motive for anyone in her family. No one in her family held nefarious intentions toward her. Also, she did not have anything of value on her. So what was the purpose of killing a 13-year-old girl? The path that Lebov was found by was one that people often traveled, so why hadn't anyone seen her body before now? The autopsy report would later tell authorities that she had been attacked from behind and hit hard in the head with the handle and blade of a knife. From this information, it was possible that she had been instantly knocked out and did not have to consciously live through the torture from the perpetrator. She had been stabbed at least 22 times in the head, neck, chest, and pelvic region along with the wounds from her eye sockets. Investigators tried to brainstorm who could have done something like this and began looking at those who were mentally ill, juvenile delinquents, and those with a history of sex crimes. They even tried looking into those Lebov had known to determine how she could have encountered this killer. One man appeared to catch authorities' eyes as he had been convicted in another rape case. However, when this man found out that he was a suspect in the 13-year-old girl's case, he hanged himself. After this, the investigation didn't go anywhere as authorities did not have any other suspects. Before I move on, I want to clarify that Lebov was not the first victim in this string of murders. She was merely the beginning that investigators knew of, who was not falsely tied to others. Which I will get into that later in the story. And because we are going to go through a lot of victims right now, some of whom were not identified at the time, 
I will refer to the others by numbers, assuming Labov is number one, and they are going to be assigned these numbers in the order that their remains were found, not in the order in which they were murdered. So with no other viable leads or suspects, Labov's murder case did not move any further. Then another body was discovered less than two months later. In Shakti, which is a small industrial town 20 miles away from Labov's discovery, a railroad worker was walking near the train station when he came across a set of skeletal remains. Victim number two. Authorities reported the remains seemed to have been there for roughly six weeks. The body was of an adult woman who had been left face down stripped of clothing with her legs open. Investigators were instantly struck with how similar this murder was to LaBeouf's. As the victim had multiple stab wounds and lacerated eye sockets. However, because no one of the woman's size and gender had been reported missing, authorities were not able to identify the victim at that time. A month after this, a soldier was gathering wood 10 miles south of that area only to discover another set of human remains. This victim, number three, had been covered with branches. She too laid face down with multiple stab wounds and damage to the eye sockets. Authorities were also unable to identify this victim at that time. The connection between these three victims was obvious at this point, as all three females had been assaulted, stabbed, and their eyes gouged out. This was the work of one individual, a serial killer. Authorities wouldn't admit that there was a serial killer on the loose, especially not to the media. Law enforcement isn't going to let that cat out of the bag and cause a frenzy, right? So technically, they were just working on three separate unsolved murders. Major McHale still organized a task force of 10 men in January 1983 to begin investigating on these three murders so as to stop the madman from preying on more female citizens. This task force would soon become known as Operation Forest Path. One of the men Mikhail recruited for this task force was Viktor Burakov, who was the second lieutenant from the criminology laboratory. Viktor was the best man for analyzing physical evidence, such as footprints, fingerprints, and any other physical evidence that could be found at a crime scene. All investigators knew about the perpetrator at this point was that he was a man and that he didn't smoke. They came up with this because the killer did not take the pack of cigarettes found in LaBeouf's purse when she was killed. The man that they were now calling the maniac also had some issue with the eyes, as he would gouge out his victim's eyes. Whether this issue had something to do with superstition or something else, investigators had no clue. But this did indicate to them that the culprit spent a considerable amount of time with the victim after they were dead. During this same month, a fourth victim was discovered. It appeared the girl had been killed six months prior 
and was found near victim number two's remains. Her body bore the same knife wounds as the other three victims so far. The only difference was that some female clothing was found nearby, so investigators assumed it belonged to the victim. From the evidence collected, authorities surmised that the victim could have been a teenager. Investigators still had no real leads for this person committing these atrocious acts. So, Operation Forest Path decided to look back in time to see if there might be other victims. Victor was tasked to lead the investigation in a farming and mining town called Novastinks. I'm sorry if I mispronounced that. Where 10-year-old Olga Stalmachinok had been reported missing. No one had seen Olga since December 10th, 1982, when she left home to go to a piano lesson. Victor questioned the parents to learn that she got along with them very well, and there was no reason for her to just simply decide to run away. But there was something strange that happened not long after Olga disappeared. The parents received a strange postcard in the mail signed by Sadist Black Cat, informing them that their daughter was in the woods and that there would be 10 more victims in the coming year. Victor dismissed this postcard as some sort of sick prank, but he still feared that Olga was dead. His fears would soon become reality when Olga's body was discovered on April 14th. She was discovered four months after her disappearance in a field three miles from the music conservatory where she had gone for her lesson. Her naked body was found in a frozen tractor rut on a farm. Because she had been killed during the winter, the snow preserved the remains, providing investigators with more clear information. The knife wounds were still visible, and the skull, chest, and stomach were punctured. Olga was victim number five, which authorities tied to the same killer. Upon further inspection, they found that the knife had been inserted multiple times, as if in a craze moving the organs all around. The perpetrator especially targeted the lungs, heart, and sexual organs. He also attacked Olga's eyes. From this, Victor knew they were looking for a sexually motivated and vicious serial killer. A person who was attacking victims at an accelerated rate, leaving no evidence and drawing no attention to what he was doing. This case put him to the test because Victor was unaware of any resources he could utilize. To his knowledge, there were very few men who would kill in this way and only top-ranking officials knew and had access to details regarding those investigations. Victor continued investigating the area where Olga's body was found. He followed the route from where she was at the music conservatory to where the body was discovered. The distance made him believe that the murderer had a car. He also felt certain that there was nothing unsightly about his appearance that would cause 
women or children to feel alarmed or frightened. Because there wasn't anything frightening about the man when he approached people, investigators knew this would make him even harder to find. The team began focusing on known sex offenders in the area. More specifically, they wanted to know where they were on December 11th. They also looked into released mental patients, as well as the men who lived or worked around the music conservatory who owned or used a car. Investigators also had handwriting experts come to inspect the postcard that Olga's parents received from Sadist Black Cat and compared it to samples obtained from the entire town. But still, investigators were left with no clue as to who this killer could be. For the next four months, no valuable information or evidence turned up for investigators. But then another body was discovered in another Lesopolosa in Rostov. Similar to where Lebov was found, a group of boys stumbled upon bones in a gully. Investigators could not find a missing persons report on the sixth victim. But after examining the bones, they were able to link the crime to the others and assumed it was a female. It also revealed that the victim had Down syndrome. This chilling detail caused terror to rise within the investigators as they realized the killer lured a mentally handicapped child who would not be able to defend herself. But it would still provide a promising lead as authorities would be able to check the special schools in the area to identify the victim. Investigators were able to determine the victim was a 13-year-old girl who no one reported missing because she would often leave. In September, victim number seven would be discovered two miles from the sixth victim's body, located in a wooded area near Rostov's airport. But this victim was different, as it was an eight-year-old boy. However, he had been stabbed just like all the other previous victims, including his eyes. The little boy had been missing since August 9th. This puzzled the investigators because even though there was very little known about serial killers amongst the team, they still knew that they always went after the same type of victim. Whether it was a foot fetish, someone who looks like an ex, or a particular race, or particular physical appearance. They are not known to switch up their targets so readily. Their suspect was known to go after grown women and young girls, not boys. This led the team to wonder if there was a copycat killer on the loose. The theory seemed impossible, but apparently so did the thought of a person possessing numerous victim types that could trigger the same sexual violence. Soon, Victor found out that the killer had finally been caught. The nightmare was over. So he decided that he would go to the jail where the culprit was held to learn what he could about 19-year-old Yuri Kalinick. Yuri had lived in a home for mentally disabled children for years and had been trained to lay floors in construction. One day, when he was riding a trolley with some friends from his previous residence, the conductor grabbed him. She grabbed one boy, demanding him to tell her 
what he knew about the recent murders. The boy told the conductor that Yuri had committed the murders. Due to Yuri's demeanor, squirming at the accusation and trying to desperately free himself, Yuri was a mentally slow 19-year-old accused of committing murder and was scared. But authorities fully believed that they had broken the case. I mean, he was acting so suspicious, so obviously he must have been the culprit, right? He was then arrested and interrogated. Yuri had no right to a lawyer or to remain silent. The 19-year-old could barely comprehend what was happening. But still, he denied having any involvement in the recent murders. Authorities kept him in jail for several days, believing a guilty man would inevitably confess. Of course, his situation was starting to become clear to him. To make the beating stop, he would have to tell investigators what they wanted to hear. Yuri would confess to all seven of the murders and added four unsolved murders that occurred in the area to his list. But now, officers needed evidence to support his confession. This is when Victor came in to help further the investigation. It appeared that Yuri was a viable suspect because he rode on public transportation and had a mental disorder. Victor had no reason to believe he wasn't the perpetrator before meeting the 19-year-old because he somewhat fit the profile they were looking for. Also, why would someone confess to a brutal crime they didn't commit? While Yuri was able to supposedly lead investigators to the site of where some of the murders occurred, Victor remained unconvinced that he was the killer. He observed that Yuri didn't go straight to the spot where the body was found. Even when he was close to the area, he appeared to wander around the area until he picked up on some small cues from the officers about where they had expected him to go. Even examining Yuri's written confession placed further doubt in Victor's mind as he surmised that Yuri was provided with most of the information in the confession and possibly felt intimidated. But then, another body was found. The discovery did not vindicate Yuri, as the woman was murdered several months before he was jailed. Victim number eight's body was discovered mutilated in another wooded area. Her nipples were removed, which investigators felt had been done with the killer using their teeth. They felt that the killer bit the woman's nipples off. That is frightening to think about. Her abdomen was slashed open and only one eye socket was damaged. Her clothes were also missing. Victim number nine was found on October 20th sporting the same wounds as the other previous victims. The woman died approximately three days earlier, while Yuri was in custody. Authorities realized that the killer was growing bolder and more crazed, 
with his surgical removal of the victim's organs, as this victim was completely disemboweled. Even more frightening was that her missing organs could not be found. While she still fit the profile of the killer's targets by riding public transportation, there was one deviation from all the other slayings. The victim's eyes were still intact. Was it possible the killer changed his M.O. had he been interrupted? Or was this a separate killing? Four weeks after the discovery of victim number nine, another set of skeletal remains were found in the woods. The victim was estimated to have died during the summer and there was evidence that her eyes had also been taken. A 14-year-old boy identified as Sergei Markov would be the next victim discovered near the railroad tracks. He was reported missing on December 27th. Because his murder occurred during the winter, his body had been preserved well enough for investigators to determine what the murderer did. Sergei had been stabbed in the neck 70 times. The killer then cut into the victim's genitals and removed everything from the pubic area. He also violated his victim anally. It also appeared that the killer had gone to a nearby spot to have a bowel movement. This made it apparent to authorities that Yuri was not the killer committing these depraved crimes. Mikhail retraced the boy's steps from the day he was reported missing. He started in the town where the boy lived called Gukovo and boarded the local train following where the boy had gone that day. A home for the mentally disabled was located in the same town and the teachers there reported that a former 23-year-old student named Mikhail Tiepin had left around the same time as the 14-year-old taking the train. Mikhail Tipin was a very large man who barely knew how to talk. Authorities would once again receive a confession. Tipin and his friend Alexander Ponomaryev stated they met Sergei, lured him into the woods, and killed him. They also stated that they left their excrement at the scene. Apparently, Tipin was known to have several violent fantasies. He would also take credit for several other of the unsolved murders that happened in the area. But there was always something off about the confessions, as he would never mention gouging out the victim's eyes. Another problem with their confessions was that they admitted to two other murders that were already proven to have been committed by someone else. Needless to say, authorities were very confused. Major Mikhail had his doubts, and Victor firmly believed they did not apprehend the killer responsible. He did not believe the killer worked with an accomplice and was a demented individual, not mentally handicapped. However, from Sergei, authorities finally received their first piece of useful evidence. The medical examiner was able to find semen in him. The boy had been raped and the perpetrator ejaculated. 
Now when investigators apprehend the killer, they would be able to compare the blood antigens. While this did not provide a precise match, it did eliminate all of the suspects who had confessed because they had the wrong blood type. However, the lab would later issue another report claiming there had been a mix-up with the sample. So the blood type did match Mikhail Tiapin. But again, the bodies still piled up while he was detained. Numerous victims were discovered in wooded areas in 1984. Some of them were very close to where previous victims had been slain. The first victim found after Tippin's arrest was of an 18-year-old woman, last seen at the bus stop with a boy who worked nearby. The girl had been slashed up, but again, her eyes were left intact. However, there was still a new development as her finger had been taken. But with the killer becoming more brazen, he started leaving behind more physical evidence. Not only did investigators find a size 13 shoe print left in the mud, but they also were able to find traces of semen and blood. Authorities questioned the boy who was last seen with the victim, but he had an alibi. More significant details would emerge about this death when authorities received the medical examiner's report. They would soon discover that the victim had pubic lice, undigested food in her stomach, and there wasn't semen inside her. This suggested that the perpetrator masturbated over her. It also brought up the possibility that because she was poor, the killer lured her away with the promise of a meal. They did discover that the victim had a friend who had been missing since 1982. Using dental records to match against skulls from various remains, authorities were able to identify one of the victims as the 18-year-old's friend. Soon another suspect was apprehended and confessed to the murders. But Victor was searching for a certain personality type by this point in the investigation, and no one who came forward matched what he had in mind. This caused a division in the task force. What further drove a wedge in the team was the fact that the crime lab could not provide them with a definitive answer as to whether the semen samples found on two of the victims were from the same person. To mediate this problem, a forensic scientist from the Moscow lab was brought in. She was able to determine that they were type AB, eliminating the officer's entire list of suspects. The killer struck again that march in Novoshakinsk. The name of that town is so fun to say. <laughs> 10-year-old Dmitry Teshnikov was found three days after his murder, stabbed and mutilated. The tip of his tongue and penis were missing. Authorities were able to find semen on his shirt, which would link him to the previous two cases where semen was found. They also found a large footprint near his body. But this time, 
Investigators were in luck as witnesses came forward claiming to have seen the boy following a tall, hollow-cheeked man with stiff knees, large feet, and wearing glasses. But no one knew who this man was. One of the witnesses claimed to have seen a white car. After this, numerous more victims were found. 17-year-old Lundmila Alexieva was found stabbed 39 times with a kitchen knife. However, leads for this victim went nowhere and ultimately wasted time and resources. Another was a girl who was killed with a hammer. Another woman was stabbed multiple times with a knife. A mother and daughter were also found to have died at the same time. By the end of the summer of 1984, investigators were looking at 24 victims who could have been murdered by this one individual. In the instances where semen was left behind, it proved to have the same AB antigen. Also collected from one of the victims was a single gray hair, which was determined to belong to the killer. They also discovered some scraps of clothing near a boy, which did not match the boy's clothes. In 1984, it was apparent that the killer responsible for these deaths also changed his pattern. Now the serial killer would remove the upper lip of the victim, sometimes their nose, and would leave them in the victim's mouth or in their ripped open stomach. The task force set to find this monster felt that the investigation was spiraling out of control. They had no witnesses, limited physical evidence, and no way to know how the culprit was luring these victims. The killer went from killing five victims the first year that they knew of to killing a person nearly every one to two weeks. It would only be a matter of time before the killer made a mistake, right? He was killing at an alarming rate. Surely there would be a witness or some physical evidence left behind to stop this nightmare. Unfortunately, the perpetrator did not make many mistakes. There was an increase in surveillance as authorities desperately sought the serial killer attacking women and children. And with this uptick in surveillance, officers detained certain men that they found suspicious. Two suspects that they detained became interesting as one appeared to be the man they were after, while the other one actually became an informant for authorities. But as time went on with no further developments, a dozen new detectives were appointed to the case, and the task force would soon comprise of some 200 men and women involved in the investigation to stop the killer. Victor was appointed to head this team, which got him closer to Leeds as they came in. Under his command, officers were assigned to work undercover at bus and train stations and to stroll through the parks. At this point in the investigation, authorities profiled their suspect to be a man between 25 and 30 years old, tall, well-built, with type AB blood. They knew he was careful and was at the very least of average intelligence. 
Authorities also determined that he was possibly verbally persuasive as he was able to easily lure his victims. He either lived with his mother or a wife. They also concluded that their suspect may have been a former psychiatric patient or a substance abuser. Also, he may have some knowledge of anatomy and skill with a knife. So anyone who could match these characteristics would have to submit to a blood test. During the investigation, the press was forbidden to write any stories linking the murders. They were only allowed to ask for witnesses to come forward regarding any of the murders. There was also no warning given to the public for parents to protect their children or to young women who were out alone. Which I found this decision questionable. On the one hand, I can understand investigators not wanting to cause panic or cause the killer to completely stop because then they would never catch him, right? But then again, you are also allowing your citizens to walk into a trap. So I don't know how I feel about this decision. But then again, I am fortunate enough to not be in a position where I have to make these kinds of decisions. <laughs> what do you think about this decision? Let me know in the comments. Major Zanasovsky was undercover when he spotted an older man at the Rostov bus station who was speaking to a female adolescent. When she got on her bus, the man circled the bus stop to sit next to another young woman. The older man's behavior seemed highly suspicious to Zanasovsky, who decided to go question him. The man's name was Andrei Chikatilo, who was a manager at a machinery supply company. Zanasovsky found out that Andrei was in town on a business trip, but lived in Shakti. When questioned why he was approaching the young women, he stated he once worked as a teacher and missed talking to young people. And with that, Zanasovsky let him go. But still, Zanasovsky had a feeling about Andre. So when he spotted him again, he boarded the same bus he got on. In a report, the officer stated he seemed very ill at ease and was always twisting his head from one side to another. While following Andre into another bus, the detective saw him approach numerous women. When Andre solicited a prostitute and received oral sex under his coat, Zanisovsky arrested him for indecent behavior in public and subsequently went through his briefcase. The briefcase did not contain anything to suggest he was in town for business. Instead, investigators found a jar of Vaseline, a piece of rope, a long kitchen knife, and a dirty towel. Zanisovsky firmly believed he found the serial killer they had been searching for for so long. He urged the attorney to come to interrogate Andre. When they drew Andre's blood, it was found to be type A. He was also a member of the Communist Party with good character references. 
There was nothing in his background to raise any suspicion or link him to the slayings. Still, authorities kept him in jail for a couple of days to see if it would put pressure on him to confess. However, Andre denied everything. He only admitted to having a sexual weakness and was then released. He would later find himself arrested for three months for petty thefts at work. Even so, he did not have type AB blood, so there was no way he was the killer. After this, Victor breached protocol by consulting with psychiatric experts in Moscow about the case. He wanted to get their opinion on the idea of one person killing women and children of both genders. Unfortunately, he found that most of them were uninterested or wouldn't provide him with much because they were provided with insufficient detail. Psychiatrist Alexander Bukhanovsky agreed to study the few known details, the crime scene patterns, and so forth to come up with a more accurate profile than what authorities had come up with. The case of a serial killer who murdered women and young children interested the doctor. Not long after, Alexander provided Victor with a seven-page report. From what he had read and researched, he concluded that the killer was a sexual deviant between the ages of 25 and 50. He was around 5 foot 10. He surmised that the man suffered from some form of sexual inadequacy, causing him to blind his victims to prevent them from looking at him. Alexander also wrote that the killer brutalized the corpses partly out of frustration but also to enhance arousal. He was a sadist who had difficulty obtaining satisfaction without inflicting cruelty. The report continued that the killer was also compulsive and would be depressed until he was able to kill again. The psychiatrist also concluded that the killer did not suffer from a mental handicap, nor was he schizophrenic. The culprit was able to work out a plan and follow it. Someone who was a loner and was the only offender involved in the crimes. Victor got two other opinions from other psychologists, but still, he didn't have anything that would bring him closer to solving this case. So he began working with the idea that Alexander provided. That the killer suffered from a sexual dysfunction. He decided to start looking up records of men who were convicted of homosexual crimes. This is when he came across the name Valerie Ivanenko, someone who had committed several acts of perversion and who had claimed he was psychotic. The suspect also proved to have a charismatic personality. He was even employed as a teacher at one point. Looking further into the details of Valerie, he was 46 years old, tall, and wore glasses. Victor even described that Valerie had been brought to the psychiatric institute in Rostov, but escaped. To Victor, Valerie was too good to be true. He matched the profile pretty well. Could he have found the serial killer? 
Victor would then stake out the apartment of Valerie's invalid mother before catching and arresting him. But as his blood type was A, it eliminated Valerie as the killer. So Victor offered him a deal in return for his release. Valerie would help in investigating the gay population for authorities, and he proved to be very good at receiving secret information. Soon, Victor knew a lot about Rostov's underworld, from its perversion to its violence. But Victor still felt like he was only led toward more dead ends. The gay men he investigated did not have the personality disorder he was looking for that would be associated with the killer. After investigating these men, he started to believe that the killer was a heterosexual man who was impotent when it came to traditional sexual relations. During this time, it was as if the killer had halted his killing spree because there was a 10-month span with only one body. A young woman near Moscow was found. Investigators wondered if the killer had moved or traveled to Moscow. Maybe he left the area or had been arrested. With the very limited information they had, they just could not tell. Another body was discovered in August 1985 with similarities to the other victims in Rostov. Victor went to Moscow to look at the photos of the girl that was found near the airport. Looking at the victim, he knew the killer had targeted this woman in Moscow. With this, Victor checked the flight records and had officers go through all the handwritten tickets. Unfortunately, they failed to discover a significant clue that was right under their very noses. Detectives in Moscow pulled cases together that occurred involving young boys that had started when the Rostov slayings had seemingly stopped. Three of the boys had been raped and one decapitated. As the Rostov detectives were helping in the Moscow investigation, they were brought back to Shakti, where another body was discovered. A homeless 18-year-old girl was found in a tree grove near a bus stop with leaves stuffed in her mouth. They collected quite a bit of evidence from this girl's body, more evidence than they had previously received from any crime scene. Authorities collected a red and blue thread from under her fingernails. They also found sweat near her wounds that were typed as AB, which was different from the victim's type O blood. Between her fingers, authorities collected a strand of gray hair. With all of this physical evidence left behind, investigators were hopeful that they would soon be able to crack this case. The team even found a good suspect who had been implicated with a previous crime. And after 10 days of intense interrogation, he confessed. But still, Victor felt that there wasn't something right about this suspect. This feeling only grew when the suspect could not take authorities to the correct murder site. Once again, the suspect who confessed to the crimes was not the perpetrator. 
Chief Investigator Isa Kostoyev, an agent who had one serial killer investigation under his belt, was soon appointed to the Leso Pelosa case. Investigator Isa looked over the work that had been done so far and felt the investigation had not been conducted well at all. He believed that authorities had already crossed paths with the man and did not know it. Detective Issa decided to start researching about the killer. He even had the 19th century work on sexual predators by Ronald von Kraft Ebbing translated into Russian to help him. He also discovered a rare edition of Crimes and Criminals in Western Culture by B. Utivsky, which had a chapter detailing cases of dismemberment and disfiguring of victims. From his research, he learned that some killers were driven by arrogance and the idea that their victims were objects that belonged to them to do with as they pleased. He would keep this newly found information stored away for use on further suspects. In the meantime, Victor turned to psychologist Alexander again, allowing him access to all of the crime scene reports to provide him with a more detailed profile of their suspect. The doctor would spend months of his own time writing 65 pages dedicated to what made sense to him from his work with gay men, sexual dysfunction, necrophiles, and necrosadists. In his work, the perpetrator was labeled as Killer X. A more condensed version of this profile states that Killer X was not psychotic because he was in control of what he did and was clearly self-interested. X was narcissistic and arrogant, considered himself gifted, but he was not someone who was overly intelligent. He had a plan, but was not creative. The psychologist believed the culprit was heterosexual, with boys being a vicarious surrogate. X was a necrosadist, needing to watch people die to achieve sexual gratification. Leaving his victims helpless, he would hit them in the head. The psychologist further explained that the multiple stab wounds were a way for X to enter them sexually while he sat on top of them or squatted next to them. The deepest cuts would represent the height of his pleasure, while he masturbated with his hand or spontaneously. There could have been many reasons why the culprit felt the need to cut out the eyes, but nothing in the crime scene really suggested what that motivation was. He was either excited by eyes or had a fear of them. There was also the possibility that he believed the superstition that his image would be left in them. For those who are not familiar with this superstition, in the late 1800s, there was a popular scientific belief that the last image seen by a dying person or animal was recorded on their retina. It was further believed that if someone could figure out the process, one would be able to develop the retina like a photograph to show that image. So if Killer X believed in this superstition, 
he was afraid that the last image that authorities would find was of him murdering his victims. That's why he took their eyes. Dr. Alexander believed that when X would cut into the sexual organs, it was a manifestation of power over women, and he could have either kept the missing organs or eaten them. Removing the sexual organs from the boys could have been a way to offset them to make them appear more feminine. A compelling spin in the profile of Killer X was the theory that he somehow responded to changes in weather patterns. The psychologist found that before most of the murders, the barometer dropped, which could have been his trigger, especially if it coincided with other stressors that occurred at home or at work. It was also observed that most of the slayings were committed midweek, from Tuesday to Thursday. Alexander now believed that the culprit's age was between 45 and 50, citing that this is the time at which sexual perversions are often most developed. He believed that X had a difficult childhood, was conflicted, and kept to himself. X also had an abnormal response to sexuality. The doctor could not say whether X was married or had fathered children, but concluded that if he was married, then his wife did not ask much of him and allowed him to keep his own hours. He further determined that X's killing was compulsive and while he might temporarily stop, if he felt he was in danger of being caught, the slayings would still continue until he was either caught or dead. And they didn't know it just then, but Dr. Alexander's profile was pretty spot on. While Dr. Alexander's report provided a lot of enlightening details, Victor did not find anything useful that would help him find the killer. This is when Victor found a man facing execution after being convicted of the sexual murder of seven boys. Anatoly Slivko Authorities sought his reasoning for the mind of a serial killer. Anatoly attributed his actions to his inability to engage in normal sexual arousal and satisfaction. Sexual murderers have infinite fantasies through which the killer sets up the rules of behavior and feels a demand for action, and the act of planning their crimes provides them with that satisfaction. His statements did not provide anything practical for their own investigation, but Anatoly's demeanor while being questioned showed them a lot, just in the way he was able to compartmentalize everything. It made investigators believe that he could live in a way that hid his true propensities, which I think this was further demonstrated to authorities by the fact that this interview took place only hours before Anatoly was executed. Investigators believed that their serial killer was a lot like Anatoly. But the killing seemed to have stopped. In Rostov in 1985, there was only one dead woman discovered. Nothing happened during that winter or during the spring. 
However, by July 23rd, 1986, the body of a 33-year-old woman was discovered. But the victim's wounds did not bear the same markings as Killer X. The only similarity was that she had been repeatedly stabbed. Authorities wondered if this new victim was actually the target of Killer X or someone else. But for the next woman found on August 18th, there was no question it was the work of their serial killer, as she had all of the same sickening wounds the perpetrator liked to inflict. The only difference was that the victim had been mostly buried, except for one of her hands sticking out of the dirt. This now led investigators to wonder if he had been killing this entire time, but didn't know it because the bodies were buried. By this point, everyone was at their wit's end with this case. The handwriting experts gave up on the sadist black cat postcard, and authorities could not go any further with the 14 suspects on the list. Victor created a comprehensive booklet to give out to other police departments, and a card file was created to keep track of new leads. Four years of intense work and stress from this case would lead Victor to having a nervous breakdown by the end of 1986. He remained in a hospital for a month because he was weak, exhausted, and could not sleep. He was then ordered to rest for another month. But he was not going to give up on the case. The brief period of rest allowed him to step back and look at the case with more clarity. Unfortunately, the only conclusion he could come up with was that the only way they would be able to catch this killer is if he murdered again. While this was not something anyone wanted, it appeared that it was their only option. Everything else they were doing was just wasting time and money. But nothing happened for the rest of 1986. No bodies were discovered throughout 1987 either. It wouldn't be until spring, after the snow melted on April 6, 1988, that a railroad worker would find a woman's naked body near the tracks. The victim's hands were bound behind her, and she had been stabbed multiple times. Her skull was bashed in, and the tip of her nose was missing. The only physical evidence found at the scene was a large footprint. Some people remembered seeing the victim while she was alive, but they only recalled her being alone. Authorities wondered if this slaying should be included with the other killings because there was no sign of sexual assault, and her eyes were still intact. And there was also the fact that she was not killed in the woods. But on May 17th, the body of a nine-year-old boy was discovered in the woods, not far from the same train station. He had been raped, and his orifices were filled with dirt. The victim also had multiple stab wounds, a blow to the skull, and his penis had been removed. The boy was quickly identified as Alexei Voronko, who had only been missing for two days. Authorities interviewed one of Alexei's classmates, who stated he had seen him with a middle-aged man with gold teeth. 
a mustache, and a sports bag. The child stated that they had gone into the woods together, with Alexei telling him he would return soon. But he never did. This information helped authorities greatly, as there were very few adults who could afford gold crowns for their teeth. They would go to local dentists to locate individuals who matched the child's description. But again, by the end of the year, they still had nothing. Not only did they learn nothing from this information, authorities were also informed by the Ministry of Health that it had been a huge mistake for them to assume that typing blood secretions was an accurate match to blood types and that the labs were even providing them with accurate results because there are rare paradoxical cases in which they did not match. This meant that literally any of the suspects that authorities eliminated solely based on their blood type could have been the killer. As you can imagine, this news was frustrating for authorities. They would have to redo four years worth of work. And they would also need to take semen samples, which had to be voluntary, not blood samples. All authorities knew to do at this point was to place more men at the public transportation stations. It wouldn't be until April 1989 before another victim was discovered that authorities could add to the Lesopolosa murders. A 16-year-old boy who was reported missing during the summer of 1988 was found in the woods near a train station. The murderer repeatedly stabbed the boy and removed his testicles and penis. Missing from him was a watch he had received from his aunt and uncle that had been inscribed, something that would greatly help determine who the culprit was if it was found in their possession. None of the investigators who were assigned to the trains where this occurred reported witnessing anything suspicious. A ticket clerk did report that she had seen a man that summer on the platform who tried to convince her son to go into the woods with him. However, when police located the man, he was quickly eliminated as the killer they were seeking. On May 11th, an eight-year-old boy was reported missing. Two months later, his body was discovered by the side of a road, bearing stab wounds and genitally mutilated. This instantly made authorities aware that the killer probably noticed all of the extra surveillance at public transportation stations, prompting him to change his habits. Again, authorities were hopeful that maybe someone had seen something because roadside slayings are considered careless, as there is the potential for numerous witnesses. Hungarian student Elena Varga was murdered in August in a wooded area far away from any train or bus station. Because her body had the same multiple stab wounds and mutilations, she was linked to the Lesopolosa murders. A little over a week later, 10-year-old Alexei Kobotov went missing. His body was discovered four months later in early 1990. The sexually mutilated body of an 11-year-old boy was found in a Lesopolosa 
Then another 10-year-old boy was found with his sexual organs cut off and his tongue missing, which appeared to have been bitten off. Again, the serial killer shifted gears, with the next victim being a female. Then at the end of July 1990, the body of 13-year-old Viktor Petrov was discovered mutilated in the botanical gardens. Authorities now had 32 victims linked to the Lesopolosa murders that happened over the last eight years. Newspapers were now free to report this news since government control over the media had loosened their grip, causing the public to put a lot of pressure on investigators to solve this case. The people in the top positions were being threatened, while those in the lower positions at the bottom of the totem pole were being fired. The pressure from the public would only increase significantly when on August 17th, an 11-year-old boy named Ivan Fomin went swimming close to his grandmother's cottage. His body lay in the reeds not far from numerous potential witnesses who should have heard or seen him as the killer stabbed him 42 times and castrated him. Detective Viktor Burakov knew he needed a new plan to catch the killer. He determined which stations the killer would most likely strike at next and had undercover officers patrol those stations. While he had other officers appear more obvious to the public to scare off the killer from those areas, authorities would force the killer to strike in a place he thought was safe, but in actuality wasn't. And in these places, they would also record the names of every man who came and went. Officers would also be placed in the nearby forests dressed as farmers. It was a huge operation with over 350 people in position. Authorities thought that the train station in Dunleshkaz would be a good place to set up post because two victims had been found near that particular station. This station and two others were selected as the most promising. But before the plan could be set in place, the killer chose a victim from Donleskaj Station, killing a 16-year-old mentally disabled boy. He was stabbed 27 times and mutilated his body before discarding his clothes. The boy was missing part of his tongue, his testicles, and one eye had been stabbed. After identifying the victim, authorities learned that the boy spent most of his time on the train. Unfortunately, no one had seen him leave with anyone. Of course, this left Detective Victor in despair, because if his plan had been put into action, they could have caught the killer. Soon, another 16-year-old named Victor Tishchenko was reported missing while on his way to the Shakti Railroad Station to pick up tickets. The 16-year-old was an athletic and handsome boy who was larger than any of the other male victims so far. As he weighed about 130 pounds, 
His body was discovered in the same area where the mother and daughter had been found six years earlier. He was found in the usual condition, multiple stab wounds and mutilated. In the grove, there was evidence of a prolonged struggle. Victor hurriedly put his plan into place, making sure everyone was in position. But the killer still struck again, undetected. A young woman was found beaten and sliced open. Part of her tongue had been cut off. Again, there were no witnesses. However, authorities recorded the names of the men who had been at the train station nearby. And one name stood out. The man had been interrogated before and only released because his blood type did not match the semen samples. They were sure that this man was the killer. 54-year-old Andre Romanovic Chikatilo was at the Dunlesque train station on November 6th. He had been questioned and cleared in 1984, but he had now been placed at the scene of a victim's disappearance. It was reported that he was seen coming out of the woods and washing his hands at a pump. He also had a red smear on his cheek and ear, a cut on his finger, and twigs on the back of his coat. Victor placed Andre under surveillance where they would soon learn that Andre had resigned from his post as a teacher because of reports that he had been molesting students. He had then worked for a business but was fired when he failed to return from business trips with the supplies he was sent to retrieve. While he was jailed in 1984, the murders had stopped. All of his travel records coincided with other murders, even the one in Moscow. He was once a member in good standing with the Communist Party, but was expelled when he was sent to jail. Everything authorities had was circumstantial. They would need more, like catching him while in the act or receiving a confession. But while under surveillance, Andre was just this ordinary man who did nothing unusual or suspicious. However, Inspector Issa read the earlier report on the man and ordered him to be arrested. Three undercover officers brought Andre in for interrogation on November 20th, 1990. They noticed that he did not have a mouth full of gold teeth like one witness claimed. During the interrogation, they learned that he was married with two children and that he had a university degree. In his satchel, they found a folding pocket knife. Authorities placed Andre in a cell with an informant who was expected to get him to admit to the killings. But the informant was unsuccessful. They also searched his home but found no evidence from any of the victims. However, they did find 23 knives. Many have claimed that these knives were used for the murders, but this was not proven. Investigator Issa decided that he wanted to handle the interrogation the next day with Andre's lawyer present. 
Issa wanted to set up the interrogation room in a way that would intimidate Andre. He wanted the room to only have a desk, a table, two chairs, and a safe. In the safe, he would say that all of the evidence they needed against him was in. When Andre was brought into the room, he appeared before him as a weary elderly person. A tall and older man with a long neck, sloping shoulders, oversized glasses, and gray hair. Using a shuffling gait. Looking at him, he probably seemed pitiful and harmless. But Inspector Issa believed that Andre probably had plenty of energy when he needed it. He knew he would be able to get a confession from him. After all, Issa had interrogated hundreds of suspects by this point and was able to receive a confession from all but three of them. But Andre wasn't going to confess very easily. He maintained his innocence, stating that the police had made a mistake. He denied that he had been at the train station on November 6th and did not know why his name was reported as being there. Investigator Issa told him that he knew he was lying. So the next day, Andre waived his right to legal counsel and proceeded to write a three-page document to which he confessed to sexual weaknesses and to years of humiliation. Andre continually hinted at perverse sexual activity, but did not name it, and said that he was out of control, not admitting to anything specific. Another longer document he wrote would state that he did move around in the train stations and saw how young people there were victims of homeless beggars. Also admitting that he was impotent. Authorities believed this to be an indirect confession. With Andre possibly feeling guilt, but staving it off by pointing the finger at other suspects and hinting at how it was best that some of these beggars died rather than reproduced. He also mentioned in this that he had thought of committing suicide. Issa told him that his only hope would be to confess to everything in a way that would show that he had mental problems. That way he could receive an examination that would prove he was legally insane and receive treatment. He furthered that the evidence in the safe would convict him without a confession, and then there would be no hope to save him. Investigator Issa thought for sure this would make Andre crack. After this, Andre requested to have a few days to collect himself before submitting to more interrogations. He was granted this time, and everyone was sure that he would come back to confess to everything. But when the day arrived, he claimed he was guilty of no crimes. For each period involving murder, he claimed he was at home with his wife. Over the next nine days, Issa was no closer to receiving that confession authorities depended on. The informant who shared a cell with Andre told Detective Victor that the interrogation techniques were not according to protocol. He explained that the investigators were being rough with Andre and causing him to become defensive. 
Issa brought photographers in to pressure Andre into believing that they had witnesses to whom they were going to show these photographs. But still, Andre held that he was innocent. A medical examination was performed on Andre that showed his blood type was A, but his semen had a weak B antibody, making it appear that his blood type was AB, even though it was not. He was the paradoxical rare case. But this was not enough to charge him with the crime, as authorities had been ridiculed for this already. Authorities only had 10 days where they could hold a suspect before charging them with a specific crime. They did not have enough proof to charge Andre with anything. By the ninth day, Andre was still maintaining his innocence, and it was looking like authorities were going to have to let him go. Detective Victor thought they should try another interrogator, Dr. Alexander Bukhanovsky, the one who wrote the detailed psychological profile of Killer X. When it appeared that Issa wasn't getting anywhere, he finally agreed to let the psychiatrist see Andre. There were conflicting reports as to who actually thought of this idea, whether it was Victor or Issa, but either way, it was the best move authorities made. Dr. Alexander agreed to question Andre, but explicitly stated that it was out of professional interest, not for the court. Soon the psychologist would find himself closed in an interrogation room alone with the suspect in the Lesopolosa murders. Alexander was stated to have seen right away that this man was exactly the type he had described in his 1987 profile. The psychologist wrote of an ordinary loner who appeared non-threatening, and that is exactly how Andre portrayed himself. The psychologist felt that Andre wanted to talk about his rage and his humiliation, so he showed the suspect sympathy and listened. For two hours, Alexander sat with him, listening to the man before starting to discuss the crimes. The psychologist spent hours talking to Andre before leaving the room to tell authorities that he was ready to confess. Issa prepared a formal statement accusing Andre of 36 murders, a number that was off by a long shot, but they didn't know that just then. Andre Chikatilo read the statement and admitted that he was guilty of the crimes listed. He told investigators that he was ready to tell the truth about his life and what led him to commit these crimes. But authorities were not ready for the story they were about to hear. Among his admissions was his first murder that occurred before Lyubov Biryuk. He had killed a nine-year-old girl, Yelena Zakatnova, in early 1978. A crime that was considered solved because a man had already been arrested, tried, and executed for her murder. Andre stated that he had moved to Shakti that year to teach. Before his family joined him, his free time was spent watching children, where he had a strong desire to see them without their clothes on. 
He had purchased a hut on a secluded street to maintain his privacy. One day, while walking to the hut, he just happened upon the girl. That's when he decided to take her back to the hut to attack her. But he could not achieve an erection. Instead, he moved in imitation of the sexual act, while using the knife as a substitute. In the process of strangulation and stabbing, he blindfolded the girl. Once she was dead, he tossed her body into the nearby river. He was actually a suspect in the case when the girl's body was found, as a witness had seen him, and there was blood found on his doorstep. However, the other man had confessed to the murder under torture. Isa asked him why he blindfolded the victim. Andre explained that he had heard that the image of a killer remains in the eyes of a victim. That's why he had gouged out the victim's eyes. He only stopped doing this when he decided it was not true, so he stopped taking their eyes. However, he later admitted that he did not like his victims looking at him while he attacked them. Andre also stated that he hated to see how drifters at the train stations went off into the woods for sexual encounters that he could not imitate. But his fantasies only became even more violent. He attacked another girl looking for money in 1981 in the same manner, but also used his teeth to bite off a nipple and swallow it. He stated that after seeing her body cut open, he involuntarily ejaculated. Andre then covered her with newspaper and took her sexual organs with him to dispose of them in the woods. However, thorough searches were conducted to find the missing organs of all the victims, but they never turned up, leading many to believe that Andre consumed them. He remembered every detail of the 36 Lissapolosa murders and went through each of them for authorities one by one. For some of the victims, he would act as a predator, learning their routines and habits. The others were just opportunities that happened along his path. Stabbing the victims was always a substitute for sexual intercourse that he could not perform. He even told authorities that he had learned a way to squat beside the victims to prevent getting their blood on his clothing. A technique that he demonstrated for investigators using a mannequin. Since he worked for a shipping firm, he always had an excuse for receiving scrapes or cuts when asked about his injuries. What appeared to trigger his rage was his impotence. Especially if the women made demands or ridiculed him. He soon learned that he could not become aroused without violence. He stated, I had to see blood and wound the victims. However, it was different when it came to the boys he attacked. Andre would have this fantasy that the boys were his captives and he was a hero for torturing and killing them. He could not really give a firm reason for why he cut off their tongues and penises. But at one point he stated he was taking revenge against life 
on the genitals of his victims. Andre confessed that the whole thing, the cries, the blood, the agony, gave me relaxation and a certain pleasure. He continued that he liked the taste of their blood and would even tear at their mouths with his teeth. The act of chewing or swallowing nipples or testicles gave him an animal satisfaction. He even drew sketches of the crime scenes for investigators to corroborate what he said, and everything fit with what authorities knew. But he also added more victims to the list. So many more. He killed one boy in a cemetery, placing the body in a shallow grave. The grave he had initially dug for himself when he had contemplated suicide. He took investigators to the spot where they recovered the body. Another victim was killed in a field. Andre would either bring authorities or tell them where the bodies were located, and they were always found right where he said they were. All but one. He described murdering a victim in an empty apartment. However, to get the body out, he claimed he had to dismember it and dump the parts down a sewer. At the time of this body's discovery, authorities wondered if it was the serial killer who did this, but decided it couldn't have been because the serial killer they were looking for didn't dismember the bodies this badly. But it was actually him. By the time Andre was finished confessing, the count of how many murders he committed was a whopping 56. But there was only cooperation for 53 victims, 31 females and 22 males. However, there is the belief that there could be more than just that. Authorities now have more than enough evidence to bring him to court. But in the meantime, they learned a lot more about him. Andre Ticatillo was born on October 16, 1936, in a small village called Yabluchny in the USSR. When he was born, Ukraine was in a famine caused by Joseph Stalin's forced collectivization of agriculture. Andre's parents were both collective farm laborers, living in a one-room hut. As collective farm laborers, they received no wages for their work, instead only receiving the right to cultivate a plot of land behind their hut. Because of this, the family did not have sufficient food. Andre later claimed that he didn't have bread until he was 12 years old. He further claimed that he and his family would often eat grass and leaves to fend off hunger. During the famine, some 6 million people died. Children saw disfigured corpses and heard the absolute horrors of hardship. He was also repeatedly told by his mother, Anna, that before he was born, he had an older brother named Stepan, who had been kidnapped and cannibalized by starving neighbors. 
This incident had never been proven, nor has it ever been proven that Stepan even existed. Even so, the seed had already been planted by his mother, and this stuck with him for the rest of his life. In a prison interview, he said, Many people went crazy, attacked people, ate people, so they caught my brother, who was 10, and ate him. He also recalled his childhood as being blanketed by poverty, hunger, ridicule, and war. His father, Roman, was conscripted into the Red Army when the Soviet Union entered the Second World War. While serving, he would be taken prisoner after being wounded in combat. He was marked a traitor and sent to a prison camp. Because of this, Andre was mostly raised by his mother. Andre would witness the effects of the Nazi occupation of Ukraine between 1941 and 1944. He described these acts as horrors as he watched bombings, fires, and shootings, adding that he and his mother would hide in cellars and ditches. Andre and his mother were even forced to watch as their hut was burnt to the ground. The mother and son were forced to share a single bed, which furthered his ridicule because he was a chronic bedwetter. So every time this happened, his mother berated and beat him. Most of his childhood was spent alone living in his fantasies as other children mocked him for his awkwardness and sensitivity. This is when he developed anger and rage. To entertain and empower himself, he devised images of torture, and these remained a fixed part of his killings later in life. Anna gave birth to a baby girl named Tatiana in 1943. As his father had been conscripted, it was obvious that he wasn't the father. As many Ukrainian women were raped by German soldiers during the war, it is speculated that Tatiana was conceived as a result of one of these German soldiers. It is also speculated that Andre was most likely present and witnessed this since they lived in a one-room hut. Andre began his schooling in September 1944. He was a shy and studious child, but he was physically weak. His stomach was often swollen from hunger from the post-war famine. It was reported on several occasions that he would faint at home and at school. He was also a regular target of bullies who mocked him over his physical stature and timid nature. But even at home, he would still receive this harsh treatment from his mother. His younger sister recalled that despite the hardships endured by their parents, their father was a kind man whereas their mother was harsh and unforgiving toward her children. Andre enjoyed reading and memorizing data. He would also study often at home to increase his self-worth, as well as compensate for his failed eyesight that prevented him from reading the blackboard. Andre's teachers spoke greatly of him, describing him as an excellent student and regularly praising him. 
In his teenage years, Andre was a model student and a fierce communist. By 14 years old, he was designated as editor of his school newspaper and was the chairman of the Pupils' Communist Party Committee at 16 years old. He also organized street marches. While he was a model student, Andre claimed learning did not come easy to him because he suffered from headaches and poor memory. But he was the only student from his collective farm to finish the final year of study and graduated with excellent grades in 1954. By the time he hit puberty, Andre found out that he had chronic impotence, which worsened his social awkwardness and his self-hatred. It also furthered his shyness in the company of women. At 17 years old, he became acquainted with his first crush, Lilia Bereshiva, as they worked on the school newspaper together. He would never ask her out because he was always just so nervous while around her. That very same year, Andre jumped on his sister's 11-year-old friend, wrestling her to the ground. As the young girl struggled, he ejaculated. This incident left a big impression on him. After graduation, he applied for a scholarship at Moscow State University. While he passed the entrance exam, with good to excellent scores, his grades were not deemed good enough for acceptance. However, Andre speculated that his application was rejected because of his father's tainted war record. I mean, he was accused of being a traitor. But it was proven that the other students who took the exam actually did perform a lot better than him. After this, he did not try enrolling at another university. Instead, he traveled to the city of Kursk, working as a laborer for three months. In 1955, he enrolled in a vocational school to become a communications technician. That very year, Andre formed his first serious relationship with a girl, two years younger. They attempted intercourse on three occasions, but each time, he was unable to sustain an erection. After being together for 18 months, she ended the relationship. After finishing his two-year vocational training, Andre moved to Ural's city of Nisni Tagil to work on a long-term construction project, where he undertook correspondence courses in engineering with the Moscow Electrotechnical Institute of Communication for two years until he was drafted into the Soviet Army in 1957. Shortly before completing his military service in 1960, he joined the Communist Party. He then returned to his native village to live with his parents, working alongside them on the collective farm. He soon became acquainted with a young divorcee, having a relationship with her for three months. Their relationship ended after several unsuccessful attempts at intercourse. After the woman innocently asked her friends for advice as to how Andre could overcome this problem. However, most of his peers found out about his impotence. 
Andre stated during an interview, girls were going behind my back, whispering that I was impotent. I was so ashamed, I tried to hang myself. My mother and some young neighbors pulled me out of the noose, while I thought no one would want such a shamed son. So I had to run away from there, away from my homeland. Andre eventually married a woman in 1963, whom he met through his sister named Fedosia Odnachevna. While Andre was attracted to Fedosia, he stated that their marriage was basically an arranged one through his sister and her husband. And the pair had barely known each other two weeks before they married. She was also described as being critical of Andre, just like his mother, causing him to withdraw even further into his fantasy world. He would further claim that his marital sex life was minimal. After his wife understood that he was unable to maintain an erection, they would agree that she would conceive by him ejaculating externally and pushing his semen inside her with his fingers. Apparently this worked as his wife gave birth to their daughter Ludmilla in 1965 and their son Yuri in 1969. But in 1964, Andre enrolled as a correspondence student at Rostov University, studying Russian literature and philology. He earned his degree in 1970. Shortly before receiving his degree, Andre obtained a job managing regional sports activities. He remained in this position for a year before starting his career as a teacher of Russian language and literature. While he was knowledgeable in the subjects he taught, Andre was ineffective as a teacher, unable to maintain discipline in his classes. He claimed that he was regularly subjected to mockery by his students, who took advantage of his modest nature. As a teacher, one of his duties at the school was making sure the students who boarded there were present in their dormitories in the evenings. He was known to enter the girls' dormitory, hoping to see them undressed. However, he also discovered adolescent students engaging in intercourse. He would later state that this disturbed him as he was confronted with the sight of children doing what he had not done even when he was 30 years old. Andre would commit his first known sexual assault in May 1973. He swam towards a 15-year-old girl, groping her breasts and genitals. As she struggled to free herself, he ejaculated. Months later, he would sexually assault and beat another teenaged girl whom he locked in his classroom. Andre was not disciplined for either of these incidents. He also was not disciplined for the incident where Fellow teachers witnessed Andre fondling himself in the presence of his students. However, the amount of complaints against him increased greatly. So much so that the director of the school had to call Andre to a formal meeting where he told him he could either voluntarily resign or be fired. He promptly left his position and found another job as a teacher at a different school in January 1974. 
By September 1978, Andre lost his job as a result of staff cutbacks. This led him to a teaching position in Shakti. Andre fully admitted that by the mid-70s, his desire to view children drove him to hang around public toilets so he could spy on young girls. He would purchase bubblegum and offer it to female children as a way to initiate contact with them and gain their trust. It is known that he actually sexually assaulted at least three girls in this way. By 1978, he killed his first victim. In March 1981, his career as a teacher ended after several complaints were made by students of both sexes. That same month, Andre started a job as a supply clerk for a factory in Rostov, which required him to travel a lot across much of the Soviet Union to either physically purchase materials to fulfill production quotas or to negotiate supply contracts. Because he was on the road fairly regularly, this made it easy for him to find vulnerable strangers to have his way with. He stated that he didn't have to go looking for them because they were always right there and they were usually willing to follow him. He had read the newspaper reports about the murders when the press was allowed to print them and had known it was only a matter of time before it would all end. Being arrested, he admitted, was a relief. He believed he suffered from an illness that provoked his uncontrollable urges. He would answer all questions and wanted to see some specialists in sexual deviance. For two months, Andre was in Moscow's Serbsky Institute for Psychiatric and Neurological Assessment. It was found that he had brain damage from birth affecting his ability to control his bladder and seminal emissions. However, after all the reports, he was found to be sane. He knew what he was doing, and he could have controlled it. Andre was brought to the Rostov courtroom on April 14, 1992, and was put inside a large iron cage, where he could either sit or stand. There were 225 volumes of information collected on and against him. The press wrote about the maniac and of his upcoming trial. So on the day of his trial, the courtroom was filled with the family of many of his victims. When he entered, all of them started screaming at him. Throughout the trial, he appeared bored, except for when he'd show a fit of anger and yell back at the crowd. On two separate occasions, he pulled down his pants, exposing his penis and telling the crowd that he was not homosexual before being removed from the courtroom. It was obvious that he would be found guilty of murder. He confessed to it all and provided more than enough proof that he did it. However, there was a slim chance that his psychological problems could save him from execution. Still, this was an uphill battle for the defense as he could only cross-examine the psychologists that prosecutors had brought in. The defense was only appointed after Andre confessed and everything was said and done. So even this outcome was far-fetched. 
But the theatrics were not over just yet. At one time, he spontaneously denied committing six of the murders. Then, at another time, he would add four new ones. He claimed to be a victim of the former Soviet system and called himself a mad beast. He also claimed that there should be 70 incidents attributed to him, not 53. During the trial, no one truly addressed the fact that there was a discrepancy between the blood type in the semen samples and Andre's blood type. The forensic analyst explained her discovery of the rare phenomenon of a man having one blood type but secreting another, a hypothesis that was later ridiculed around the world, yet with no forensic experts hired for the defense, there was very little the defense attorney could do. The court also accepted the psychiatric diagnosis of Andre's sanity. He was examined again and the psychologist said that he was still of the same opinion. It was Andre's predatory behavior and ability to shift to safer locales that showed his degree of control as well as the fact that he had stopped for over a year at one point, as Andre claimed it was the year in which he said he had celebrated his 50th birthday and was in a good mood. The trial went into August. The defense concluded its side by stating that the evidence in psychiatric analyses were flawed and the confessions had been coerced. They requested for a verdict of not guilty. The next day, Chikatilo broke into song from his cage and then talked a string of nonsense with accusations that he was being radiated. He was taken out before the prosecutor began his final argument. The prosecutor reminded them what sadism meant, repeated each of the crimes to them, and asked for the death penalty. Andre was brought in and given a final opportunity to speak for himself but he remained silent. The judge took two months to reach a verdict. On October 14th, six months after the trial begun, he pronounced Andre Chikatilo guilty of five counts of molestation and 52 counts of murder. Then Andre cried out incoherently, shouting swindlers, bidding, throwing his bench, and demanding to see the corpses. The judge sentenced him to be executed. The people shouted for Andre to be turned over to them so they could tear him to pieces, as he had done to their loved ones. But instead, he was taken back to his cell to await the results of an appeal. His lawyer claimed through official channels that the psychiatric assessment had not been objective and he wanted further analysis. On February 15, 1994, when his appeal was turned down, he was taken to a special soundproof room and shot behind the right ear, ending his life. He was buried in an unmarked grave within the prison cemetery. That's it for today's case about the Rustav Ripper. I hope his children are not ridiculed and treated horrible for the things that their father did. No one deserves to be treated horribly for something their parents did. So what did you think of today's case? 
Do you think Andre was a product of his childhood circumstances? Do you think he ever had a chance at a normal life growing up in poverty in Nazi-occupied Ukraine? Let me know your thoughts in the comments. Thank you for listening and your support. Stay safe and I will see you for the next episode. Bye.